Welcome to The Healthy Advisor, a podcast from wealthmanagement.com focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. I'm Diana Britton, Managing Editor of wealthmanagement.com, and in this podcast, we explore some of the struggles and personal development issues facing advisors and financial services professionals, and how to get to a place of healing for mind, body, and spirit. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Healthy Advisor podcast, and thanks for joining us. As you may know, this is the podcast focused on financial advisor health and well-being, and today's guest has been on quite the journey. Her name is Lori Lori Isel. She's the president of the Pinkerton, Ohio-based RIA Arcadia Financial Partners. Lori, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. So Lori runs her own fee-only financial planning shop. Uh, She's also the mom of five kids, four boys and one girl, and she's been raising raising them by herself. In 2019, uh, her husband, John Isol Jr., a former fire chief, died suddenly due to a heart attack. And on top of that, Lori's adult son has struggled with opioid addiction since his teenage years. And while her son has undergone treatment, as Lori told me, you know, it's not a, it's not a one and done kind of thing. And he still has moments of, of relapse. Um, You know, it's, it's a constant journey with him. And as he works towards recovery, Um, Lori, can you take us back a little bit and tell us about the journey you've been on with your son and, and your, so when did you guys initially find out that he was using drugs? Sure. So as you said, it's been quite a journey. Um, when he went through treatment the first time, he admitted to actually starting to experiment with drugs when he was in seventh grade. He was only 13 years old. Initially, uh, I suspected that he was using. I certainly didn't suspect when he was 13. So mm. it, it took some time to um, to kind of figure all of this out. By the time he was in high school, we had a problem. You know, you see all of the, the usual, the usual signs, the things that they, they warn you to be watchful for a grade suffering, not taking care of himself, his, he quit playing sports, which was something that he had always loved before. So, you know, we, we knew that something was wrong. He was, he was spending a lot of time alone in his room, but that's what teenagers do, right? <laughs> um, so it wasn't until we started to see those signs that we we had more, we still didn't have proof that he was actually using. These were just the behaviors that that weren't quite right for him. By the time he was in his freshman year in high school, we, we did end up having proof. Um, by that time, he was using about anything he could get his hands on. He got all types of drugs at school. He would trade his birthday or holiday gift money or even lunch items for mm. pills or water bottles with vodka. I heard stories that he was passing out in the hallway of the school. He he went to treatment for the first time when he was 15. Wow. He is now 21 and has been through treatment four times. Wow. Um. And I, you know, I know, you know, I have a loved one who suffers from uh, alcohol addiction and it's often, I just, I don't know how to help 
the person, right. you know, I don't know how to, to get them into a recovery sure. mode. Um, what did you, what was your first instinct? What did you guys first try to do to, to get him help? So I, I did all the wrong things. <laughs> um, I, I thought that I could control this, that I could save him from addiction. I pulled him out of school. I enrolled him in online school. He wasn't allowed to leave the house or talk to any of his friends. I just wanted to keep him in the safe bubble of our home. But isolating him was was definitely the wrong approach. <laughs> we all need community. We all need friends, especially teenagers. It, it became a very tense, difficult, angry environment in our home. Uh, mm -hmm. Things went from bad to worse, and we ended up sending him to an adolescent-only rehab in Louisiana. He was there for 40 days. He got to leave two days early to come home for Christmas uh, because he had responded so well to the treatment. When he mm -hmm. came back, I drove him all over town to AA meetings and NA meetings, trying to find a group that he could connect with. But um, while the stories of those people in the groups were very inspiring to me, <laughs> my 15-year-old son wasn't relating to the 40 and 50-year-olds that tend to be in those rooms. I think he was sober for the better part of a year, but I'm not entirely sure. I threw a surprise party to support him, to tell him how proud I was of him for, you know, hitting that one-year mark. Afterward, though, his best friend told me that he hadn't made it a year. And by then, I had learned not to be angry with him. I was more angry with myself, and I felt terrible for putting him in that position where he must have felt so guilty, celebrating sobriety that he had not he mm -hmm. had not reached. So I did I did all the wrong things at first, and and have learned much along the way. Yeah, I mean, tell us about what uh, what you have learned about the best ways to help him, and and how are you trying to support him now? I mean, I know he's still on that journey. He's been relapsing um, recently, but what do you, what have you learned? Sure. I, I have learned to love my addict and hate the disease. It is a disease that, that was something that I said before, but I don't think I was entirely willing or able to accept until we had been through this journey with my son. When my son is in active addiction, he is powerless over his choice to use. He doesn't do it because he doesn't love me. <laughs> he does it because he has an uncontrollable compulsion to use, just like we do to breathe. Mm -hmm. um, I have learned that it's not my job to do things for him. I am an enabler. I wanted to do things for him to solve his problems, to control him, to, to do things to help him stop. But instead, it's my job to be things for him, to support him as his mother. Um, he did relapse several months ago. This time it was, it was so much different in part mm -hmm. because of how I just loved him through it rather than trying to solve all of his problems or enable him to continue to use, um, but also because of the things that he has learned in now four rounds of treatment. I love him. I encourage him. I celebrate his victories, not his victories based upon my own expectations, 
but his victories, which come one day at a time. Um, I was recently at a, a sober event and met a young woman who everybody was introducing themselves and most of them had quite a long time in sobriety. And she sort of, as if she was embarrassed, she said, I only have two weeks sober. <laughs> I said, those are the mm. hardest. <laughs> those yeah. are the hardest, you know? So for her, that was a tremendous victory. And I have learned to celebrate my son's victories. They, they may be different than what my expectations or hopes or dreams were for his life, but they are his victories and, and I can support him in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually just, uh, there's a woman in, in my church who um, her daughter recently died of an overdose and, you know, she was just kind of acting like nothing was wrong. And, and sure. I was like, how, you know, you're going through this awful time. And I don't know, I, I just was, I didn't even know, you know, at the time that mm -hmm. she was going through that. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of families, you know, try to hide these addictions from other, other people. Um, you've taken, taken a little bit of a different tack. And why is that? Um, this is a good time for me to mention that I am speaking out as a part of this campaign and social media and anywhere and everywhere with my son's blessing. I, mm. I've actually taken a fair amount of criticism <laughs> for sharing this story because uh, I, I guess it's I've been told it's it's his story to share, but I think it's my story too. He agrees with me and he knows that our story can help others. Uh, a few years ago, an incident with my son brought a, a whole slew of first responders to our home. The, the police trucks, the fire trucks, the ambulance, they, they were all there in my, my front yard. And a neighbor sent me a private message on Facebook to ask if I was okay. Mm -hmm. And I told her that my son is an addict and we had this issue and she said, don't worry, I won't tell anyone. I said, mm -hmm. tell everyone, <laughs> tell mm -hmm. everyone, because I am not the only person in this neighborhood who is dealing with this. And if sharing my story and my struggles help just one other person to not feel so helpless and hopeless and alone, then it's, it's definitely worth it. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for sharing with us. Um, I just, I wanted to provide a little bit of, of context on the opioid crisis in America and give you all some stats about, about it. Um, according to the CDC, the number of drug overdose deaths increased by nearly 30% from 2019 to 2020. And it's quite quintupled since 1999 Nearly 75% of the 91,799 drug overdose deaths in 2020 involved an opioid. Um, and just some, some teen-specific statistics from the American Addiction Centers, nearly 700,000 adolescents, or 2.8% of adolescents, misused opioid pain relievers in 2018. About 10,000 adolescents used heroin in 2018. One in 250 high school seniors used heroin in 2018. You know, a lot, a lot of other stats here, but you know, there, there's a lot of a lot of resources out there for opioid addicts. Um, you know, there's Narcotics Anonymous, other organizations, treatment centers. You know, I won't go into all of them, but you know, I think today, um, you know, we're talking about the resources and support 
for families of addicts. And that's um, really important, right? And, you know, one is uh, Naranon Family Groups, which is a 12-step program for family and friends of addicts. Um, They hold meetings all over the country. And it's primarily for those who know or have known a feeling of desperation concerning the addiction problem of someone very near to them. And so, Lori, I mean, you know, I actually went to an Al-Anon meeting recently um, because, like I said, I have a loved one. And uh, my experience with it was, you know, every everyone sort of everyone in the family sort of has a role that they take on. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I know you were talking about being an enabler and they talk a lot about, you know, when you kind of step out of that role and you don't serve that role, then you don't give the, the person an excuse to use drugs or alcohol. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, another thing that just really stood out to me was if you go to one of these family meetings, you're not necessarily going to learn how to help the addict get, you know, go get recovery, right, you know, right. get recovery. You're, you're there to help yourself. And, yes. and, you know, I mean, I don't, you know, I, I know talking to you about your experience, it was just so hard um, for you during that time and, and just functioning and, and running your own business while you were dealing with all this. Um, but I guess what were some of the things that you've learned from attending Naranon family meetings? Sure. Well, just like you said, a lot of people come to our meetings. Um, we started a group that meets in my office on mm-hmm. Monday nights, and it, it's been so helpful to me. A lot of people come to us thinking, I'm not the one who has the problem, right? I'm not the one who needs to be fixed. But you find when you're there in the rooms that you you are as addicted to the addict, you're obsessed with the addict and trying to control and trying to fix the addict. And it's a whole way of shifting your own thinking back to yourself and your own actions and how you respond to situations Mm -hmm. and, you know, what you can do. Our, our group is called peace in the storm. And, you know, many of our, our folks will come to us, um, and share that I can't believe this is my life now, you know, knowing that this is often a lifelong struggle. I can't believe that this, this is going to be my life. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, another thing that comes up a lot is the, the saying that a mother is only as happy as her saddest child. Mm -hmm. And when you're dealing with someone in addiction, um, you know, that that's a, that's a, a, tough thing to accept. And, and it really doesn't have to be that way. And I, I have learned that I have learned in these groups that I am not alone. I have learned that no family is immune. All of our stories are different, but all of our stories are the same. And our loved ones suffering from substance use disorder are from intact families, from divorced families, from, you know, losing spouses, you know, all, all sorts of situations, all sorts of socioeconomic levels. And it, no family is immune. I, I really learned how to set boundaries and how to detach with love, how to love my son and 
not not be taken over by his disease and not be obsessed with with his addiction and trying to control him and and fix him um, but how I can be happy again by shifting my thinking and working on myself instead of trying to change someone else yeah right I mean you know we, we talk about you know you can't control what other people do or how other people react, but you could control how you react, right? Yes. Yes. What kind of a toll has your son's addiction taken on you, you know, mentally and emotionally? Um, You know, I know that, again, you're running your own business. Like you said to me, it's a distraction. It's so hard, um, especially on parents. Yeah. What kind of toll has it taken on you? Yeah. Cause as a parent, you feel responsible for your child. <laughs> you feel yeah. responsible for their rearing, their upbringing, their future. Um, you feel responsible for actions that they, they take that have harmed others. You feel responsible for, for all of it. Um, learning that your child or your loved one suffers from sub- substance use disorder is absolutely devastating. You know, you, you grieve the loss of your hopes and dreams, those future plans, and honestly, your relationship with that person altogether. There's so much anger on both sides. There is lying and blaming and mistrust. Um, it, it is some of the worst pain I've ever experienced in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he is in active addiction, I am consumed with worry. And in the early days with thoughts and plans about how to fix it, and it was difficult to concentrate on anything else. It is a family disease. I was suffering. He was suffering. Our entire family was suffering, you know, and it's not just, just the two of us at odds. It's also other family members and friends and people who don't understand addiction and, you know, wearing all that guilt and blame that as a mother, I did something wrong that, that caused this situation. So it, it, it's absolutely devastating. And just emotionally, you know, it, it's anytime you have a difficult situation going on in your life, you know, it, it's hard to, to get your head in the game and be that high performer <laughs> that you are on a daily basis. And, and this is certainly, um, it, you know, it, it's not something you can plan for. It's something that tends to, some issue tends to arise that brings it all to light, probably at the worst possible time. <laughs> and mm. it's not something that is, it's not fixable. You can't mm. do anything about it. And it, it's probably going to go on for a while. You know, when, when he has, when he relapsed recently, you know, there, there was an incident with a vehicle and, you know, it, it was probably a week of dealing with just things that would pop up throughout the day that, like I said, are a distraction, things that would pop up throughout the day. And I, I have to call on the things that I've learned from Naranon and the things that, that other parents and friends have taught me setting those boundaries. This is my work time. I can't deal with this right now, but we <laughs> know mm. at the end of my day, I'll be able to do that. So I, I, I have learned to set, set those boundaries and that that has helped me to, to overcome some of that and, and taking care of myself. I have to take care of myself or I can't take care of anyone else. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. Um, it's just heartbreaking. Um, what, I mean, how did you continue to serve your clients and, and keep your business going through all this? 
I'm very blessed to have a wonderful team of people who help me every day, who were able to step up at those times that I needed a little more time or space. Um, and I, much of the work that I do is on an hourly or flat fee basis. So mm -hmm. if I'm not able to work, I'm not earning an income. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I have other children at home and other kids that want to go to college. So <laughs> quitting is not an option. So I had to find a way to keep going. I take pride in my work. I love what I do. My clients are my friends and my family, and they count on me um, just like my son counts on me. I, I have learned from others and through the Naranon family group program, again, how important self-care is, how to set those boundaries so that I can continue to do what needed to be done for myself and, and my, my sons and my business. I, I learned that I couldn't control the addict to, to do so made me addicted to him. And once I started to realize that and to realize that I couldn't fix it and I couldn't control him, then letting, letting that go gave me a, a lot more time and space. And I had to find peace with one of our group members shared once that she, she would always ask herself this question when she was dealing with the fallout from her son's addiction, she would say, does this have my name on it? <laughs> does this traffic ticket, this mm. auto repair bill, this delinquent credit card, this eviction notice, do these have my name on them? <laughs> and the mm. answer was no. And, and once I learned that I didn't have to solve all of his problems, that was a huge relief and helped me to, to refocus on, on what I needed to do and other things. You know, there are other people in my life. And as much as I love my son, and as much as we'll do anything for our kids and anything to save our kids or our loved ones who are suffering, there are other people in my life who also count on me. And um, that's also myself. <laughs> yeah, um, that's a that's a great way of looking at it. The, the woman that you pointed out. And I mean, on top of all this, you're, you're dealing with the loss of your of your husband. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, so we wrote about this on wealthmanagement.com, but the Ohio Department of Commerce recently introduced a new program to help financial advisors in the state to spot the signs of a family facing the emotional and financial costs of opioid addiction and how to help them through those struggles. Um, and according to the department, it's, it's one of the nation's first statewide initiatives focused on advisors' role in curtailing the epidemic. So, Laura, I know you were involved in the initiative. How did you become involved? Sure. So I received a survey by email from the Ohio Division of Securities about the impact that we're seeing among our clients relative to the op opioid crisis. Those usually fall to the bottom. Who has time to complete all these surveys? Yeah. <laughs> right? But given, given the topic, I, I was intrigued. So I completed it immediately. And there was an email at the bottom for more information. So I sent an email um, to that address and I basically said, I don't know what you're doing, but I want it. And here's my mm. story. Here's my personal experience. And I, I can share 
my experience as the mother of an addict and also as a financial advisor. Uh, and I, I believe that we are supposed to share our experiences to help others. So they, they followed up with me and, and I've been very grateful to be involved with that. I'm grateful that Governor DeWine and the Ohio Division of Securities have launched this initiative. It's so important to help train our financial advisors to advise our clients who have loved ones who are suffering. The education and training piece is intended to help advisors spot those red flags, as you said, and to help clients plan for the cost of treatment and also to help them access treatment. The cost of treatment and all the other things <laughs> that go along with substance use disorder can devastate families financially, lost wages, mm -hmm. medical bills, vehicles are frequently an issue, you know, constantly having to repair or replace vehicles. And, and it's really it's really unnecessary that any family would have to be devastated financially by this because there's so much help and there are so many resources available. Often, unfortunately, I talk to people who, who finally will mention this to me. They know what I do and they'll finally mention this to me as a last, just a last resort. Mm -hmm. I, I have exhausted my life savings. I have raided my retirement. You know, I've devastated my family financially. What can I do? I wish you would have talked to me a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, yeah. I would love to see, um, it, there, there are better ways to, to plan for all of this, to pay for all of this. And families need to get support to set those boundaries and families need to know that treatment is not generally a one and done situation. It, it can be very expensive. And while you might feel okay about scraping a lot of money together that, that maybe is a stretch for you to pay for someone to go through treatment, you, you may need to do that three, four, five, six, seven more times. And, and I think some people just aren't aware that that's, that's not one great life-saving measure to send them to treatment one time. Usually people will complete multiple rounds of treatment before they, they reach long-term sobriety. I would love to see financial advisors, advisors be more proactive in opening the lines of communication about this. We can be the first ones who are seeing the red flags. Do we have clients who are making large cash withdrawals, maybe even small ones. Are they giving their money away? Are they supporting children far into adulthood? Are they constantly replacing vehicles? It are, we can be the first ones to see those, those red flags. And I would also like to see advisors asking on their intake forms and maybe even when they have annual reviews with their clients, do you or a loved one suffer from substance use disorder? We, we want them to share that information with us. It, it's, very, it's very important to, to have all this information. It's like going to the doctor and not telling them this really important thing about your health, right? They, they can't give you good advice if they don't know everything that's going on. Um, so I, I want clients to know that my office, you know, is a safe place I, that all of our advisors in Ohio, you know, we're a safe place to talk about this. And mm. it's a very important issue. And we like to talk about buying second homes. We like to talk about retirement and sending our kids to college. I, I had a client once that I shared with another advisor and 
the three of us would generally meet together and then there was there was one meeting where he was not able to attend and she confided in me during that meeting that she had we had just told her that she could retire so she retired and in this this meeting she confided in me that she had thirty thousand dollars worth of credit card debt she just didn't feel comfortable bringing that up and Wow. I, I, you know, <laughs> that, that might've changed, um, the advice that we had given her. So I would love for us to be more proactive as financial advisors and ask that question and open the door so that clients can feel comfortable talking about it. Mm. Well, I mean, thank you so much, you know, for, um, you know, on behalf of ad advisors for, for getting the word out and, and being involved in this cause. I mean, one other organization I'll just mention is an organization called Teen Challenge, which is a, a residential recovery program for adults and teenagers, and uh, it's free. So, you know, there's one option. If, if you, if someone wants to get clean and sober, there are so many resources out there to help them get clean and sober. You don't need to exhaust your retirement or devastate your family financially to help someone else get clean and sober. The resources are out there and we just need to help clients connect to those resources. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, I'm afraid we're just about out of time, um, but I'd like to thank my guest, Lori Isel, for being on the podcast and, and opening up here about her struggles with, with her son, Lori. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And if you'd like to reach out to Lori, if you have any questions for her, you can reach her at uh, Lori at ArcadiaFP.com. If you yourself have a struggle and you wish to share your experiences and help others in similar situations, please feel free to reach out to me at diana.britton at informa.com. I'd like to thank you for listening to The Healthy Advisor. If you've not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This is Diana Britton reminding you that where there's healing, there is hope. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to The Healthy Advisor, a podcast focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of wealthmanagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of your healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding your particular situation.